Before we start this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we're recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hey, I'm Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. In this episode, I chat with former professional golfer, and WPGA CEO, Karen Lunn. This episode is a very special one. Since 2017, I've been a board director on Australia's oldest women's professional sporting organisation, the WPGA Tour of Australasia, which this year turns 50. It's a pioneer organisation, which when formed, came up against incredible resistance and pushback as a women's organisation, and even decades later was still fighting to create a space for not only professional female golfers, but all females in golf. Karen Lunn is the CEO and a former professional golfer whose illustrious and long 28-year career saw her record 16 tour wins in her time on the Ladies European Tour, the LPGA in America and ALPG, now the WPGA Tour here in Australia. Karen also won the British Open back in 1993. She's a fearless leader who made the switch from playing to administration, first as the president of the European Tour and is now the head of the WPGA. She stood up for women in the game her whole career when roadblocks were put in her way and has stood tall throughout them all, even when she came up against challenges which threatened the future of the organisation. Golf has been slow to innovate and change for women but is now making up for lost time with a focus and commitment to growing the game for all women. We wouldn't be in this position today without the tireless and fearless work of Karen, who grew up as a shy little girl in the country New South Wales town of Cowra. Uh, little Karen Lom was a bit of a nerd. Um, I was a, a really quiet kid. Um, I love sport, but I love reading. And I loved, I was one of these kids who absolutely loved school as well. So, yeah, I was just a really quiet kid. Um, my sister was the, the boisterous one of the two of us. So my mum used to say she actually spoke spoke for me when uh, when we were kids. But, yeah, just I was, I was a quiet kid. I, like I said, I love all my sport. We all played sport. We did swimming and uh, netball and all the kids that you do, the things that you do when you're growing up in the country. So. So, uh, yeah, just a normal country kid, I would say. What's Cara like and what was it like when you were growing up? It was great. I mean, it was so good to grow up in the country and I'm so grateful that that we did grow up in the country. We had so many opportunities as kids to play all kinds of sports. Um, I guess you just think it's normal, but you, you're so far away for, from a lot of the distractions that kids that grow up in the city have to face. And, mm. you know, we just, every weekend we're out at Wangala Dam, um, you know, camping and water skiing. And I think Wangala Dam today is very different to how it probably was. Yeah. Obviously, we were all thinking of everyone at home with all those yeah. floods and everything going on in, mm. in the central west New South Wales. But, no, it was an ideal childhood, really. Like, we had a great family, um, great friends. So, yeah, just live the dream growing up to be honest with you and how did you get into golf how did that begin for you 
Yeah, it was interesting. It was a school sport at Cowra, um, which is mm-hmm. quite unusual for for even these days for it to be a school mm. sport. But back in the you know sort of early seventies, it was quite unusual. So not mm. early seventies, probably late seventies. Um, but yeah, we're Clarify. really lucky. It Don't was, get that wrong, yeah, Karen. No, no, exactly. <laughs> but uh, very lucky. We had a really good uh, pro at the golf club at Cowra, Rick the Strange, who sadly passed away uh, earlier this year. Mm. But he was so encouraging for the kids, and and I, I was just mm. I'm just grateful. I had obviously my sister a little bit later but a great group of friends that we played golf with uh, you know every weekend every day and, and we all loved it and we were just you know little golf tragics and out on the golf mm-hmm. course together so just uh, grateful for the opportunity and you know those mates that I had you know when I was 12 13 14 15 um you know very grateful we had such a good really fun group it is an incredibly difficult sport and technical sport golf how did you go when you were growing up like did you take to it easily or did it take a while because that would take a lot of perseverance to be able to get golf yeah I think I was quite good you know you can't remember everything from back in those days but I think I was quite good from young and um I got my handicap really I think I was down to single figures within 18 months of playing so I was quite good yeah I think I I was was good Jesus okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, again, you know, we played all sorts of sports and, you know, I was never going to be an Olympian at other sports, but I was pretty decent at everything that, that mm. I played. And back then, if you wanted to play footy or cricket, you had to play with the boys and that's what we did back then. So, mm. yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that I was pretty athletic as a kid and could turn my hands to everything. But obviously golf, um, yeah, golf, I got the bug very early. And, and for me, being a bit of a loner and, you know, a quiet kid, it was a great sport for me. So, you know, I could just go out with my friends or on my own and enjoy it. So. Uh, um, I only laugh because I can't quite imagine you being a loner, but it is, it's an individual sport and it's all on you, basically. There's no one else to blame. Um, maybe the equipment, we all do that. Anyway, I want to talk to you about country clubs and growing up in, and not country clubs as in going to the country club, but, you know, golf clubs in the country because some of our best female golfers, you, Curry Webb, and to a certain extent, Hannah over in Perth, Minji, I mean, they grew up in these kind of country areas and golf clubs were so much more different and they were more accommodating for young girls. Can you, and there's, there really is a correlation. And I, I spoke actually with Curry Webb about this when she was on, on her game. If you want to go back and listen to that episode, love that episode. Um, but she said as well, like if she hadn't grown up in a country town, uh, you know, she wouldn't be probably be playing golf at all. What is it about the country and the golf clubs in the country that's so different? I think the opportunities, as you said, I mean, playing golf in in country uh, areas and going to your local club, it's cheap, it's accessible. um, And, you know, kids and young girls were welcome um, when I started. So I'm not sure how it would have been growing up in the city, trying to grow up in a a play at a golf course that perhaps wasn't as welcoming. But Mm. um, all I know is that, you know, I had a great time growing up and playing at Cara. So again, consider myself very lucky. And when you look back, there was Sarah Jane Smith and Catherine Kirk from the Sunshine Coast and Lindsay Wright from Albury and, and as you said, Nikki Campbell from Canberra. So, so there's so many of the girls that came through, um, you know, a little bit later than me that were all from sort of regional areas as well. And I think probably if you look at a lot of the guys, you'll find a similar thing. Because mm. there's like, I mean, the dress codes aren't as strict, the rules aren't as strict in, in the country as well, and there's a big correlation 
to participation for girls. We'll get into that a little bit down the track because I want to pick your brain. But Idols is a big one for me because, you know, I know what it's like growing up in the country and I grew up in the country in the 80s. You grew in the country in the in the 70s. I mean, I only had two channels on my TV. I remember when I grew up in Kular and then, and then Orange for a while. You know, did you see golf? Did you see female golfers or professional golfers? How did you know that this could possibly be a future for you? Yeah, I mean, you didn't know really. You knew about the men professional golfers. Like I was a fan of Jack Nicholas when I was a kid and I had all of his books and obviously then when Greg Norman came through and Seve Ballesteros and all those guys, I mean, they were absolute legends. But, I mean, I knew of Jan Stevenson because being in the, the I guess, the elite amateur circles, people would talk about Jan and her achievements. But, you know, you never really saw it, as you said, on the TV. Like you said, you had two channels and most of them were so blurry you couldn't really see what yeah. was on them most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, yeah, it was very different. And, I mean, it was just li- literally what you read in the newspapers or people told you back in the day. But, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really have an idol, a female idol as such um, back then. It was more Jack Nicholas was my hero, absolutely. Mm. When... Did you know that this was something that you could do professionally then if you weren't seeing it on TV at all or and you didn't, you know, you're in Cara, you're isolated as well, you know. It's not every day that Greg Norman's going to come down and play around down there. So um, how did you know that this is something that you could do professionally? Yeah, I guess I was lucky I had two... um two really good friends of mine that were members of Cowra Golf Club, uh, Ray Picker and Chris Longley, and they were both in the state teams and went on to represent Australia at amateur level, and we played a lot together. So, you know, I guess just talking about players on tours and and then when I, I got to sort of the more elite levels, uh, you know, there were a few players talking about, oh, you know, perhaps we could do this. We knew about Jan. I think there was Jane Locke that was playing um, on the uh, trying on the LPGA and um, Edwina Kennedy, who was a great mentor to myself and a lot of the other amateur mm. women coming through. Ed would tell us about, you know, what opportunities there were. So I think it was only when um, a good friend of mine from the amateur days, um, Corinne Dibner, came back from, she, she played a few events in Europe in 1984 and she came back and and I think Sandra McKenzie as well um they tried their hand over there and they're like oh this is really cool and I, I hadn't really thought about it because I didn't really again as you said you don't really know when you're growing up that it's a, mm. a valid career option but you know I wanted to study and I'd uh, been accepted to university so that was my plan to study and do something else but then yeah, I just, I guess when I got a real job outside of school, um, when I did my HSC, I went and worked in the public service and started studying part time. I, I think I then realised how much I love playing golf uh, mm. and how much I miss playing golf. And then I heard about a few of these opportunities and I thought to myself and, you know, talked to my family, I'm like, I can always come back to studying. That's mm. something that I can always do, you know, but let's just give this a go. I was a good amateur golfer. I probably wasn't getting the opportunities that I felt I should have been getting, um, you know, in the Australian teams. I was beating a lot of the girls that were getting in the teams regularly, but mm. I don't know if my face didn't fit or everyone said I was too young and I didn't have too, enough experience, but my hmm. argument was, well, how can I get the experience if you won't sure. pick me? So um, so now I decided to give it a go. When I was 18, I decided to turn pro. So when I was 19, I headed off to Europe 
um, for the first time. And looking back, it was probably a pretty stupid thing to do, but what? and pretty Thank brave, you know. pretty, bra- pretty brave, pretty <laughs> brave my parents to let me do it. Yeah. But um, yeah, what an adventure it was for you know twenty eight years, and I, I don't have many regrets to be honest with you. I feel very grateful. So more, most Cara girls and country girls go, okay, when you hit 18, I'm going to go to the big smoke and that means Sydney. Um, you went, no, nope, I'm going to go from Cara over to Europe. But has your dad played a big role in that too? Because how do you, when, you, when it came to being able to finance that, that's not an easy thing to do. No, it isn't. And, you know, when when you're young, you don't really think about those things. You're just like, oh, I have this dream and I'm going to go do it. And mm-hmm. my dad sat me down. He's just like, well, you know, how are you going to pay for all this? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Something will work out. And he's like, well, no, you need to get some money. So uh, he said, I, I'll do for you what my parents did for me. So they um, he marched me down to the bank manager and we made an appointment and he guaranteed a loan for me for $10,000. And I had to pay the interest back, which I think was more than 20% back then when interest rates were off the charts. So, yeah, it was a very quick lesson, um, a quick life lesson in, oh, okay, money's real and you actually have to, you know, have some money Mm. if you want to do something like this. So, yeah, it was was great. And I I look back and I'm so grateful that my mum and my dad gave me the opportunity to do that um, because otherwise I'm not sure, you know, there were no scholarships back then. There was no rookie squad funding, Mm. you know, it was literally every man for themselves every girl for themselves so um very grateful that I had that opportunity and and lucky that I I managed to do well and pay my loan off and and off I went so that's incredible because I mean the opportunities to make money weren't huge in golf back then even when you are on the European tour so how did you pay back your loan and how did you be able to have such an incredible career on tour yeah, I mean, it was just I was lucky that I, you know, I played pretty well in some events early on in the first year. And and back then, you know, you didn't have caddies. You know, the expenses weren't anywhere near like they are today. It was a very basic lifestyle. You went off and a lot of the tournaments you drove to, so you didn't have flights to many events. So, yeah, just lucky that I, I made a few pounds here and there and a few uh, Deutschmarks and francs and whatever they were back then. And, yeah, managed to, to um, you know, pay some – keep the interest payments up that was my goal for the first couple of years and then Mm. um the second year I had my first win in 1986 I was able to pay the the whole of the loan back so yeah I mean it's it's very different to what a lot of the young people do now but in a way I'm grateful that I I had to do it kind of the tough way because Mm. I learned to appreciate money very quickly and and appreciate what I had um you know there was nothing there were no handouts at all back then Mm. so yeah in a way it's a nice way to do it but if you see some of the the help that the kids are getting these days and it's fantastic for them they've got you know they've got Mm. money so there's no pressure on them um you know they can go out and prepare as they want to they can hire a caddy and they can do everything the right way um when they first turn pro which is a great is a great asset for them Mm. and you know sets them in good stead for the rest of their career um you had to fund your own risk really didn't you like the risk was all yours right you took out the loan with 20% interest and yeah did that motivate you even more when you're on tour just be like well this is costing me I have to do this like was that an added motivation when you know you are funding it yourself um no I don't remember it being a motivation (laughs) I 
I knew that I could go back and, you know, I had a job in the public service. You know, I did well in the public service exam. I could choose whatever job that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I was studying law part-time. So I knew that, well, if this doesn't work out, it's not going to be the, you know, my life's not over. I can go back. I can finish studying. I can do whatever I want to do um, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So I think that gave me, um, I guess, the, the courage and the strength to not put too much pressure on myself and, you know, just go out there and play golf without worrying about the money side of it too much. So you know, I had to do plenty of that later on in my career. But um, in, in the beginning, it was very much, you know, just focused on playing and trying to improve as much as I could. And and if I could be good enough, then that was great. If I couldn't, then if I wasn't good enough, then I'd just go back to a different life. Golf has been very slow um, to progress and develop. You and I could talk about that for till the cows come home. Um, what were the early days on tour like for you and what kind of sexism did you come up against back then? Yeah, I, I don't recall having to face much sexism back then, certainly not in Cowra growing up. But when, when I was in England and first started to go to some of the nicer clubs over there and, and uh, you know, looking at all the rules that were in place, like you couldn't, if you parked in the car park, you couldn't change your golf shoes in the car park. And if you went in the, there was a men's, usually a men's entrance to the golf club and then a ladies entrance and a men's bar and a ladies bar. And that was the first time I think I'd ever experienced that. I, I do remember playing at Royal Sydney years and years ago when I was a kid thinking this is a little bit weird because you were just scared to do the wrong thing, but mm. that was different. But this was very much like, oh, well, women really don't get treated very well at a lot of these clubs. And mm. um, yeah, so that was probably the a first women's time. women's entrance and, and a men's entrance? Where where was the women's yeah. entrance? Was it? Uh, usually through the back uh, toilets oh. to the women's locker oh, room. What? Yeah. yeah. You couldn't even time, go through the palatial front doors of the golf club? A lot of times, no, which I was completely shocked about. Um, wow. I, 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 think, I think times have changed a lot since then. But, uh, yeah. Um, they, they sure needed to. Um, <laughs> I, mean, no, I mean, it was only a few experiences like that. When I went to the States to play, I don't really recall um, you know, dealing with sexism much and, and other places in Europe that are a little bit more forward-thinking, Germany and Scandinavia that, you know, treat even back then treated um, women with a lot more respect than perhaps some other places did. So, yeah, obviously the big difference was prize money, you know, comparing what we earned on the ladies' European tour mm. to the men's European tour. And then um, when I got to the LPGA looking what we made, which we thought was a lot of money, Mm. Um, and, and certainly I consider as a golfer myself very fortunate that you could make a living as a female, um, a female athlete because mm. I know a lot of the, uh, the other female athletes back in those days, um, it wasn't a living, it wasn't, it wasn't an option for them to play the sport they love for a living. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that, even though there was a massive discrepancy between the money that, that we as women professional golfers were making compared to the men. Mm. And it still is to this day. Yeah. There has been some progress, but, um, yeah, it's still a big discrepancy. Um. And you had Marty. She came on tour with you as well. Did she follow in your footsteps? Do you think would she have done it if not for her big sister making um, that I'm leap? I'm not sure. First? Actually, 
I'm not mm. sure. I, I don't know really. We're very different people. Um, Marty, you know, I love golf and I'm, I'm still, I don't play anymore, but I'm still really passionate about the game. I love the history. And for Marty, she was just very, very good at it. She didn't really particularly love golf. She certainly didn't love practicing, um, you know, so I, I don't know. I think it was an opportunity for us to do that together and be together. And, mm. um, you know, when Marty came out on tour, I had, you know, a few dollars and sort of helped her on her way a little bit, um, you know, which was a really nice to be able to do that. So she didn't sort of have the struggles um, early on that that, that she uh, that she, perhaps she would have if mm. she hadn't have had me. But, you know, that was a, a privilege for me to be able to help her and, and sort of set her on a path. And, yeah, she was an incredibly talented player, like I mm. think more talented than I was. But, um, like I said, didn't have the passion for it that I did. So, What about your British Open win was that just the ultimate take me back there like was that just the moment that just really created your career in a way where you were like this is the highlight this is this is it yeah, I mean, I'd won some uh, some big events. Like I'd won the European Masters twice before that in 1988 and 1990. So I won some big events before. But obviously the British Open, um, while it wasn't an LPGA event, a lot of the top Americans used to come over and play and, and it was much more prize money than many of our other events. Mm. So it was always a really big deal. Um, yeah, it was just one of those weeks. I'd been playing really well that year uh, and everything just clicked. And for me, I was never a great putter. Um, I always hit the ball pretty well, I thought, but, um, you know, I had my moments, but I was never a great putter compared to someone like my sister who was just, she. I said she looks like she was born with a putter in her hands, whereas I, mm. I, I definitely wasn't. Um, so whenever I putted You're well, I usually show did drive, well. yeah? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, whenever I putted well in an event, I was usually contending. So mm. I, I just I played really well, obviously, and then uh, hold a few putts. And, yeah, I you know, in the end I won quite comfortably. But, yeah, I mean, it was a great experience and it's something that, that no one ever, ever can take away from me. Mm. So, again, it was, it was yeah, the, probably one of the greatest thrills I've had on a golf course. Was that the proudest moment of your career looking back? Um. One of them. Yeah, mm. one of them. I think, um, yeah, yeah, certainly one of the proudest moments, yeah. Is there something about the way and your travels and the way that you had to be on the tour in those days, in those early days, that maybe young professional golfers now just won't be able to understand or wouldn't be able to comprehend? Yeah, and I think it's something that comes up with a lot of the younger players when they're talking about, oh, you know, in your career, well, how did you book your travel and how did you travel without a phone and how, how did you find your way from one country to another country? And I think looking back, sometimes I wonder myself yeah. how we actually got around and how we booked everything and um, no yeah. mobile phone, yeah, just no Google, no, no exactly GPS at all no no and you use public transport right but yeah a lot of the time and we had to pick up our own range balls so there was no like driving range where you just hit the balls and that was it you had your your bag of practice balls and a lot of times you had to pick them up yourself and yeah there was no there was no food provided there was no transport provided it was all uh, (laughs) you know here you are off you go kind of thing you told me before i'm just going to put you in there there was the fact that you you know that you're winning at the start and the winning at the end of your career as well, which 
was also, you know, as you look back, something that you're incredibly proud of? Yeah, I think to play as long as I did for 28 years and, like I said, my first wow. tournament win was 1986 and then my last one was in 2012. So I think to to play that long and, you know, I had some great times and I also had some terrible times in there, some battles with injury and slumps mm. and almost gave the game away. I can't tell you how many times, but mm. um, I guess I always deep down kept believing in myself and kept backing myself. And, yeah, it was it was, it was was actually quite funny because when I gave the game away, I was actually playing some of my best ever golf. But I think it was I got to that point where I thought, well, I've dug myself out of every hole I found myself mm. in. Um, you know, I'm fine with that now. I'm, I'm fine with with finishing my career on a on a reasonably high night. So, mm. yeah, it's. Um, I think I'm as proud of that as anything um, in my career that I was able to to battle for that long. And you know, and also, you know, for for a, a woman athlete to be able to fund myself um, for all mm. those years and do what I loved um, for a living. So, yeah, mm. I've, I'm, I'm very proud of that. You and Marty took your mum on tour for a few years as as well what was that like yeah it was it was great um looking back um again I'm so grateful that we got to share all those years with mum um our dad passed away in um, 1996 when Martin and I were both playing in the state so mm. uh, he had a heart attack and died very suddenly mm. which was obviously very sad and we were both away from home and had to fly back obviously straight away and yeah, it was like, well, there's only the two of us and mum, so what do we do now? We're like, guess what? You're in ad- you're off an adventure with us. So uh, <laughs> mum and dad had come come on tour a bit with us anyway. Um, you know, they said that, look, we, we want to spend our money, you know, supporting you girls and watching you. So they, they did that. And, yeah. yeah, so Marty and I, we said, okay, you're off with us. And I was playing a little bit in Europe and a bit in America and Marty was mainly in America living there. So she uh, split her time between the two of us and, mm-hmm. and had some great times. And, yeah, she became everyone's everyone's pal, everyone's mate. Like if, <laughs> if there was a rain delay or anything at a tournament and we were in the locker room or um, it was too wet for her to, to keep watching, you find her in the clubhouse having a, a, a scotch with someone. So yeah, uh, no, nice. we're very, very, very grateful. Yeah, sadly, mum passed away a couple of years ago. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think we're so grateful that we got to, to share some amazing times with her mm. as well. And she was there with Curry Webb's mum a while for yeah. a while, a couple of, a couple of tournaments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, the parents of the golfers get to know each other quite well. So Curry's mum and dad would come out, you know, on the, on tour when mum and dad were there. And and then when dad wasn't there any longer, it was a couple of events that, that mum was there with Curry's mum and they went off. I think we were in Calgary once and they went off to the you know, ski fields and everything for the day and <laughs> a couple of museums and everything. So, But, look, you know, it was a great atmosphere being on tour back in those days. It wasn't like it is now where people mm. travel with their coaches and, you know, the yeah. caddy, their physios and their, you know, mm. their team as they as they mm. call it now. But um yeah, it's uh very, 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 very different world back then. How did you make that switch to administration? Um and what made you want to stay involved in the game? Was it, you know, wanting to make change and to change that or you know, because there was so much growth happening in the game at that moment and you could see the potential for growth or was it something that you just loved golf and and yeah. you wanted to be able to stay involved? Yeah, I think that I just I loved golf and I wanted to give back and I felt that I had 
um, some of the skills that, you know, were needed when I, when I was on the Ladies European Tour, I was on the Players' Council there, which is the body responsible for forming all the rules and regulations and enforcing them. And then I became the chair of that. Uh, then I was asked to go on the board of the LEC and ended up there for 14 years and as the uh, chair for 10 years. So hmm. I think that that experience um, stood me in really good stead for um, coming back into this role um, mm. when Warren Seville decided to, to move on from the what was then the ALPG. So, yeah, I think that looking back, um, I think I've said this to, to you before, Sam, um, as, as professional golfers, you think that you're so busy and it's <laughs> not until you do something different that you realise that you're not busy at all. There's so much downtime. You have so much opportunity to do other things and I think that was really good for me to have something mm. to uh, distract me from, you know, the, the stresses and rigours of playing professional golf. I always mm. had something else to, to do. So um, I think that was really good and obviously mm. now the opportunities for um athletes to study um, remotely when you're, you know, and I'd certainly encourage anyone that is out there doing something to, to think of what's going to happen, you know, when you decide to put the tools down as such, you know, mm. there's there's a big life ahead of you and whether or not you can afford to retire. I mean, I wouldn't want to retire when I was 44 or 45 or something. Mm. Um, hmm. And, I, you know, again, I, I think that I, I've got a lot to give in terms of my experience. Um as, as an administrator and also as a golfer. So, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm enjoying every every day of my work. I love, you know that. You never went back to that public service job at all, did you? <laughs> no, like I didn't. That? <laughs> no, no um, I didn't. Tell me, in those early days, you know, being involved in um, the Ladies European Tour, what brick walls did you come up against, you know, being a women's tour and, and being a women's sport? Uh Back then, I think it was looking back at my experiences, how many people become involved in sport for their own self-interest and how many people are there for their own self-interest rather than um, because they want to make the sport better. And I think that's the one thing when I came back um, back to Australia um, and took this job. I wasn't shocked by anything. Like I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew how to run golf tournaments. I knew how to, to manage the business of a golf tour because mm. of my experience. But I wasn't prepared for the minefield um, that was ahead of me in terms of um, the the lack of collaboration between the bodies at that point and mm. the, um, yeah, I guess the if everybody fighting themselves for their own little patch. Mm. I think that I was really shocked um, at the political uh, aspect of it, mm. um, that was that was a real really shocking because I had no idea, um, I guess, how bad the landscape was in Australia in terms of um, the peak bodies in golf. Um, mm. Yeah, there was absolutely no collaboration. Mm. And it's, it's very different now, as you know, thankfully. Well, but only from the last couple of years, though, right? Like this continued on for a really long time was it mm -hmm. did you really notice that shock because I mean you were chairperson of the European tour for did you say 10 years and on the board for before that yeah, as a 40. board director so 14 years all told um what was the landscape like in over in Europe compared to to Australia I mean I can imagine they were going through their own challenges but were they light years ahead of where golf was in Australia 
Um, I wouldn't say they were light years ahead, but it was a different landscape because when you're, you know, talking about the latest European tour, you're talking about dealing with all the different federations from all of the countries. So you're expecting that everyone's got their own interests at heart mm. there and there's going to be, um, you know, sometimes when not everyone agrees on the way forward to do things. And, you know, you, you got used to dealing with that. And, you know, back then as well, you know, the Ladies European Tour was kind of like the very small sister to the the LPGA and there wasn't a lot of collaboration between those tours mm. either. So, um, but again, you're talking about different countries and um, a lot of different organisations. But when I came back here to to think, well, this is our country, this is one country and mm. uh, everybody's fighting amongst themselves mm. um, over their patch and mm. there was very little respect given to um, back then was the ALPG um, mm. that I was running and, and Shady Wall was the president and uh, we had a lot of battles. Um, mm. We had a lot of battles and... Um, it took a long time to, you know, we we never stopped fighting and, um, you know, I'll throw Rachel Hetherington in there as well. Rachel is a Mm. great advocate for for women's sport and um, Rachel was prepared to fall on her sword when she needed to. Um, And I think there was a a lot of tough women there Um, Mm. and we just kept fighting and, and gradually we made progress, but it was very, very small steps Mm. um, in terms of getting the respect um, that we felt we should as the women's arm of professional golf in this mm. country. Um, so, yeah, it was it was some tough times. And like as you said, it's only really the last probably two or three years that there have been huge changes, mm. um, you know, for us having a seat at the table in the, the formation of the Australian golf strategy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that wouldn't have happened before. Mm. Um, it, you know, we, we didn't have a voice. We, we didn't have respect. Um, we certainly um, mm. were treated very poorly by some of the other bodies, um, golfing bodies in the country. Um, you know, which is which is really Can sad. You give examples for those who aren't involved in golf, just how bad that situation was, where a women's golf organisation um, and golf tour, which has um, how would I put it, is a um, like an official body, yet the disrespect that we suffered in our own country. Are there examples of that which you can share, which gives people an idea about what it was like for the ALPG and now WPG? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, um, obviously as the ALPG, we were a sanctioning partner in um, the Australian Women's Open, which is one of the biggest events in the country. Mm. Um, yet when we got to uh, to those tournaments, there was no recognition of the ALPG at all on any of the marketing collateral, um, any of the signage. It was, um, you know, and this is going back, you know, a few years now. And it was, uh, again, if it, it, we just had to keep stamping our feet and saying, this is not okay. Mm. You know, you can't, you can't treat us like that. Mm. Um, and it, yeah, like I said, there was a lot of, a lot of battles been fought. Uh, and, you know, I think when you look back at the, the leadership of some of the organizations we were dealing with, it was, uh, you know, there were roadblocks there and, um, 
Mm. Yeah, it was it was a it was a very difficult time because mm. you we're out there and um, as I said when Shaney was the the president um, and obviously Julia Boland's taken over from Shaney and as you know Julia mm. does an amazing job, a legend, um, she's incredible. Yeah, mm. yeah, and uh, you know we we've had to be really tough in a lot of situations and mm. and as you know there was another situation um, a few years ago regarding the Vic Open uh, when the LPGA came on board as a sanctioned partner and uh, the ALP. Was was pushed to one side and was told that we won't be get wouldn't be getting a, a sanction fee or any income from the event, which could have been uh, could have meant the end of our organisation and put mm. put the organisation at risk, and it was devastating. And it was mm. very fortunate that at the time when. Um, some big players in the world of golf, including the LPGA commissioner Mike Wan, uh, you know, going back to that point, he mm. he said, "No, this is not what we stand for as an organisation. Mm. You know, we want to work with the other tours, and they need to be recognised mm. um, along with us." And and Mike and I know that um, you know there was a few Hall of Fame LPGA Hall of Famers as well that felt that this hang on, this isn't right. We can't yeah. be representing an organisation that's going to treat the smaller tours. Like that, and mm. you know, ever since then, I think uh, we fought, and as as you're very aware, that was a big battle, mm. um, and it took it took its toll. It was it was it's hard. Um, it was incredibly you know, when you, when you, stressful at the time. We yeah. didn't even know whether you know, an organization which is one of the oldest female sporting organizations in Australia, whether we were going to to be able to continue because it was like you said, just that disregard and that disrespect for the fact that we were a female organization. That was just happening constantly within the landscape. The the one thing, and I th- I remember the meetings that we had and the stress and just thinking, is this what? How is this going to affect us? How are we going to recover from this? But the one great thing on retrospect, when I look at that incredibly tough moment for our organisation, was the fact that it was people like Curry Webb who also stepped. Oh, that's wrong, you know. And then she spoke with the um, Mike Wan from the LPGA and then ha- things happened because of that. But it was, this, it was this great moment of women from all positions within golf standing up for each other and saying that's not on. We cannot allow that on our watch for that to happen to this organisation and, and this, this tour, which has an incredible incredible history and I I felt like it was a really great example of women supporting women in a really difficult situation and someone like Curry who is you know such like our greatest golfer in Australia being able to you know use her platform to make sure that the landscape was was better it was there's almost that that I just think that that was a bit of a silver lining in a really difficult moment. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we know that in terms of who has the loudest voice in golf in Australia, when it comes to women, it's Kari Mm. without any question. She is our greatest ever player. And she's been such a wonderful advocate for for our organisation, you know, any time that there have been any issues um, where she felt that was our organisation or our members or or women in general, women golfers weren't being treated correctly. She's the first one to stand up, and mm. and you know, unfortunately for a few of us, there was a lot of it, a lot of us that were stamping our feet really hard mm. and and um, shouting and saying this is not right and just being ignored. And and I think at times it is when somebody like Kari is prepared to put a hand up and say no, this is mm. not right. Mm. Um, people actually had to listen; they couldn't ignore what she was saying. Mm. And, and uh, like I said, you know, we, as an organisation, yes, we would have survived that year. But had we 
had we uh, continued to be disrespected and treated like we were, um, there's no way our organisation would have been sustainable. Mm. So mm. it would have, it could, it could have, and probably would have been, um, you know, the end of the t- women's tour mm. here in Australia, which was just would have been tragic, as you said. Um, this year we're celebrating its 50th anniversary. Yeah. And, um, to the as brave 11 women and Alan Gillett, who was the founder of the the then LPGA of Australia, um, you know they put their neck on the line back then, and and you know were pioneers for women and for mm. for women athletes. So, um, you know, very grateful that we managed to um, jump through those hurdles and, mm. and come out the other end. And you know, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be a partner in the uh, the Women's and Men's Australian Opens, ISPS Sandra Australian mm-hmm. Opens, and our logo will be front and centre with the PGA and the GP mm. World Tour and ISPS and Golf Australia. And um, we're in such a great place now. But mm. as you know, we certainly weren't a few years ago. So I feel more positive about our future now than, than I oh, certainly have for a long time. 100%. And, you know, the last few years for this organisation has just been, as you said, has been terrific. And it's a it's an all of industry now. There's been a lot of changes within golf. But, you know, the PGA, the WPGA, which we are, and uh, Golf Australia are just working so well. And, and women are at the forefront of pretty much every action that they take, which for a long time it was like, you know, like screaming at walls, like brick walls, that women are the future and women, you know, can be, have such a place in this sport and and wasn't really getting that, that message through. I want to talk about, because I want to tell people about the WPGA, because this is, as I mentioned, I'm a board director on WPGA and something that I'm incredibly proud to be a part of and incredibly proud to have stuck out, like as we mentioned, those really difficult years and and be able to see, you know, the organisation flourish in the way that we always knew it could and if it just had the right landscape around it and, um, and to see the incredible things happening in golf at the moment. The 50th anniversary, this is why we're doing this specific podcast because it's a big deal. Like, you know, it started off as the ALPGA, the Australian LPGA, and then it went to ALPG and now WPGA. It was a change that brought in. And I've got to say, like, we talk about Curry and Mike Wan, but if we didn't have leadership like yours and like Julia Bollins during that time, then, you know, we wouldn't have survived. So I know you keep putting it on those other powerhouses, but I have to, I know you're really humble, but I have to make sure that it's known that it was in your incredible leadership that got the organisation through that difficult time. Um, But let's go way back, 50 years. I'm trying to think of another female tour or sports organisation that is still going now, which has... As it was going back then, like 50 years. Would I be right in thinking this is Australia's oldest female sporting organisation still going now? Yeah. Well, I think that we, we had, none of us have been able to think of another one. So um, obviously women's sport has been going for a long time, but I think uh, mm. for a lot of organisations it's just been the sport's been going for a long time mm. rather than a women's organisation. It's just been... And a professional you know, organisation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, no, I think that it is uh, is pretty unique. And um, and like I said, it's it, for everyone that has been a member of the WPGA right from the very beginning, um, they've all played their part. You know, mm. they've all... Um, 
um, you know, jumped in their cars and travelled all around Victoria and southeast um, New South Wales playing in pro-ams to keep the circuit going, you know. So I think everyone, there's so many people that have played their part in this and, and I'm really, really proud to have been a member for a long time mm. and then obviously be in this role. But, yeah, I think it shows that, you know, women have to be very strong to to do what we've done and, and like I said, it's a real testament to to those that were there in the beginning because um, talking to, to Alan Gillett who founded the the women's tour back then and and some of the other founding members you know there were a lot of roadblocks along the way and and they mm. didn't get any help from anyone they they had roadblocks from uh the women's amateur organization and the media and the pga back then so um it was very tough for them as well so you know we, we've had to fight a lot of fights to get to where we are and and like i said when we have our anniversary in a couple of weeks time mm. uh the celebration down at kingston heath it's going to be a very proud moment for for all the women who have played their part Kind of sad considering all the roadblocks I had 50 years ago that, you know, just five years ago we were still coming up against some pretty, you know, big roadblocks that that could have broken us but like they did push through and now we're enjoying some really great times for for women's golf at the moment and for the organisation. But why was it started in the first place 50 years ago? Why did they have this idea to be able to start it? This Alan Gillett, tell me about about because... It was started by a male. So who was yeah, he? Exactly. Did he have a view of women's sport or was he a bit opportunistic in in that? I think a little bit I think a little bit of both. He was a very, very keen golf from Adelaide and he was reading a golf magazine, um, an American golf magazine that had a picture of a female uh, tech, tech coaching professional in there, um, giving some tips on, you know, whatever she was giving tips on. Revolutionary and, uh, back then, got to say. <laughs> exactly, to absolutely. See that. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he said it was like a light bulb moment for him. Why don't we have women golf professionals in Australia? Like we have man professionals, male mm. professionals, we have male coaches, we have why are there none? So he did a bit of research and he um, he actually got on a plane and went to America for six weeks and actually met up with this lady, I can't recall the name, that was in the golf magazine giving the tips, met up with her and met up with a few other teaching professionals and then went um, to several events on the LPGA Tour and he he said he couldn't believe that the, uh, the galleries that the women's events would get um, and the quality of the golf and the uh, – the corporate support for the events. So he did a lot of homework and came home and he said, well, no, I'm going to do this. Mm. There should be women's golf for, um, at, at a professional level here in Australia, so I'm going to set it up. So, yeah, he basically wow. targeted the the leading amateur women in the country at the time, and I think there were a couple of female professionals. Um, our first ever president, Betty Dalgleish, was one of them, uh, but she hadn't had anywhere to play. She wanted to play professionally and I think was trying to get some funding to go overseas and play. So, um, yeah, so they, they targeted the leading amateurs and they put their schedule together for the following year, 1973, and came up with 19. I think it was small events and, and off the, off they wow. went. And 19, then, that's a lot, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. They started off at Wollongong Golf Club and, um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. So, yeah. uh, I love the yeah, pictures I mean, uh, of Wollongong Golf Club back then because it's like, Washing machines on the course. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. very 70s, isn't it? Back then. Exactly. Because it was a but washing time, machine sponsor or something that was, he managed exactly. to, to get on. So, yeah, the first tee when they're teeing off and there's big washing yeah, machines. Is it was. And it's a real shame that Alan might be able to travel down to Melbourne for the anniversary in mm. a couple of weeks. He's, his health's not great. and But I actually met met up with him and um, his wife for lunch uh, 
a while back and we had some good chats about those early days. So it was great mm. to learn more about how it did all start. And and for him, you know, he had two young kids at the time to jump on a plane and mm. go to the States for six weeks. Um, it was a big thing. So, you know, we're very grateful to him that he had the foresight to actually start this. And obviously the women that um, turned their lives upside down really for very little financial benefit mm. just because they thought it was a, a great thing to do. So, yeah, it's a great story. Incredible pioneers. What kind of roadblocks did he come up against in those early days? Yeah, I think particularly the media. He said the media was one of the worst. Uh, he didn't realise how against uh, his idea that, you know, oh, women's uh, professional golf is for men, it's not for women, you know. Why would mm. you want to do something this stupid? And obviously the women's amateur body didn't want all of their good players um, leaving and turning professional. And I had that when I was a, an amateur as well. You know, we were told that there was no future in uh, you know, being a professional golfer as a, as a female. So, um, yeah, and then hmm. uh, he, he, he saw and Now look at you. Pe- it's been your whole career, yeah. your yeah, whole exactly. life. Yeah, yeah. And I think Kari was told the same, a similar mm. message, to be honest with you, when she was thinking of turning pro. So, um, yeah, it's a, and I think Alan also reached out to the PGA to see if they could help and, and they didn't help. So, yeah, I think he, ha- he had a lot of battles as well and, um, he was very open and said, look, you know, looking back, I wish I had done a few things differently. But um, I said, yeah, but at least you did it. <laughs> no one else was prepared to do it and, and thank you for doing it. Does the WPGA get the credit for its progressiveness and its longevity, do you think? I don't think so because um, even chatting with Gavin Kirkman, the CEO of the PGA, he said that the PGA Tour of, of Australasia isn't even 50 years old. Mm. The organisation is 100 and. 20, I think something like that years mm. old. But the actual tour here isn't that old. So the women's tour was actually started out here before the men's tour, which wow. I wasn't aware of until Gavin mentioned that to me. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Right. Leading the way, the women, once yeah. again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, back in the day, the, the men would just head overseas and play, you know, whether it be in Europe or Asia or, or the US. So mm. there wasn't really a lot going on here in Australia. Mm. Um. It's been progressive in other areas as well and, you know, I've mentioned this before but as a board director I couldn't believe when we had to go through all our policies and everything and I went through the document. I was like, what, we've got a transgender policy? Like this was a few years ago. I'm like, have we got a transgender policy? And you were like, well, we have, you know, people playing who are transgender and, you know, if the sport and the organisation has to be one of the first in Australia to really develop a transgender policy. And we're, we're talking like, what, 20, 30 years ago this was developed? So people talking about it, it's a big talking point now, but this was something that, you know, we did again, Mayanna Bagger, another great episode if you want to go back and listen to that on on her game, a transgender golfer, um, professional golfer. But, I mean, something that you've got to be really you, do you look back at all the discussion going on at the moment and, you know, this year about transgender policies and just think, yep, we kind of, you were onto that really early? Yeah, I think so. And, and I was involved with the Ladies European Tour when the, that subject was first, first um, I guess, brought to light by um, Mayanna wanting to play professionally. Mm. And 
Um, you know, again, it was a great episode you did, Sam, with Wyanna. And, um, you know, she's been very brave to go through what she's gone through, mm. you know, so publicly um, and being, you know, a pioneer in that space, there's no doubt. So, um, yeah, it was um, all the tours worked closely together back then because it was something that nobody had really come up against mm. before. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think it was a collaboration of, of all of the women's tours at the time that, that led to uh, the policies in place. But, mm. yeah, I think in, in many ways, um, you know, we know that the golf is um it's a very traditional sport and um <laughs> there are a lot of things that need to change in our game mm. um and there, as we know there's been some progress made the last couple of years but um you know we want golf to be more inclusive we want mm. it to be you know more diverse we want everyone in australia regardless mm. of their bank balance or, or their uh, religion or race we want everyone to have an opportunity mm-hmm. to play golf or um, ability. so i think there's yeah. a Exactly, or ability, exactly, mm. yeah, you know, and the, the old golf is golf, you know, whether it be um, someone hitting balls on a range or, you know, to, just to see some of the all abilities athletes. Um, oh, you know, they're so inspiring and I'm so yep. looking forward to that at the Australian mm. Open in a yep. couple of weeks as well to see them having the all abilities championship as I've well. I've been seeing so big- many articles on on the all abilities lately as well, which is something that we didn't, really see and on, on golf's websites as well. Like you never really saw, you never really saw females on there. We pushed for females to be on the covers of, of golf magazines, but, um, but, and to be in the pages, but all abilities as well. I'm seeing it everywhere at the moment. It can also be better. And I'm very reluctant. Like I talk about golf being progressive with a transgender policy and WPGA in particular, but I, I use that term very loosely because the last thing, and even when I entered golf and took up a role with um, WPGA, uh, progressiveness was not something that I could use in association with golf. Very slow to innovate to the point where I, you know, when you asked me to be a, a part of of the board in 2017, my first response I was a bit worried because golf to me was right down the bottom of in terms of being um, progressive with with female golfers and I had to learn a lot about our organisation as well. But then I, I thought as well like, well, it can only get better from here because I don't think in terms of for women's golf it could get much, much worse because the landscape was so different why has golf been so slow to innovate? And I feel like now finally we talk about these last few years, but they've been great for women's golf. But I feel like we're, we're trying to make up for lost time now, aren't we? Oh, 100%. And, you know, everyone in golf should be ashamed of, of what has happened in the last 30 years because 50% of the population um, being women have basically been ignored in this country. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you look now, the average age of a female member at a golf club is 64. 18% of the club membership in Australia is is female, which is is just terrible. Mm. Um, it really is, and that's that's from a boom in the the 70s and 80s. It's just gone downhill ever since. So, And there's been nothing done. I mean, Mm. very seriously, as you know, and and Sam, you're a big part of um, working with people like Kari and and Shiloh Curtis on on getting the Vision 2025 together. And I know at the time you said, why does it have to be Vision 2025? It needs to be Vision 2022. How funny is that? How funny is that? Because I kept thinking 2025 is too far away. Like there's so much that we can do. 
And Vision 2025 was basically the strategy plan for Golf Australia on how to, you know, where we need the women's game by 2025 and women's participation in the sport. I, th- I felt like we were putting it off for 2025. Mm. Yeah, and, I mean, there's so much good stuff going on now and I think um, our good friend Tiff Cherry has done a superb job yes. um, since she came in as a head of female uh, engagement at Golf Australia earlier this year. And mm. um, Tiff's a very passionate golfer as well and obviously um, – a super intelligent woman and very passionate. So I think uh, we're making a lot of strides in the area and Tiff's doing a fantastic job there. So, yeah, so many positives. Like, mm. um, you know, I, I wake up every day and I'm so happy about the direction we're all headed in mm. um, and compared to where it was a few years ago, absolutely. Um, culture in golf clubs because we've talked about high performance and the tours and everything, but is the culture within golf clubs changing yeah, I think it is changing, not fast enough for, for my liking. But, mm. um, yeah, it is. change is not something that happens overnight. We all know that. Um, but meaningful change is happening and I think that that's a starting point. There's so much work to be done. As you said, the, when a woman arrives at a golf club, you know, and her first experience is going to define whether she plays golf probably for the rest of her life or a young girl if that first experience that first touch point is negative which you know often when you go to a golf club the all of the staff are men um, most of the guys in the pro shop are men um, you know it's, it's what you see so you know there's obviously part the rules of the national get me. strategy I don't know if I'm doing the yeah. right thing all the time like you know, am I, I've got my hat off, okay, I've got my hat off, I've got <laughs> no, doing this, exactly. am I riding the way about shoes, you know, can I wear yeah. socks like this and how do I How do I hold the pin, what do I do, where do I stand when I'm on the green, where can I put my buggy, like you just feel like you're going to take a wrong step somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think that we need to cater for, for women that want to play socially like yourself that, that don't really care about playing in competitions. You just want to go out and have fun playing. Mm. And and I have to say that, you know, a lot of times women can be our own worst enemies in golf clubs because you hear so many stories of, you know, a young person going to play a competition for the first time and, oh, they told me I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that and I was just, I felt like I shouldn't have been there, mm. you know. So I, I think that, that there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, but there's so many places that are doing you know, mm. are so welcoming for, for young women and young girls. And um, we just need to provide that experience more often and make sure that first experience is a positive one. Mm. Um, as you said, you know, wearing what what clothes can you wear? What are you allowed to wear? What aren't you allowed to wear? I mean, mm. who are you going to offend, let's be honest, by wearing a cap into a clubhouse? Mm. I mean, who is that offending? Yeah. Or who is it offending if you've got the wrong colour socks? Mm. You know, I don't I don't understand that argument i mean Mm. i know clubs have history and blah 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 but Mm. you know those clubs that have history unless they change they're going to be in trouble you Mm. know if we know the stats we know the figures um you know unless they're prepared to change um and a lot of them are a lot of the top clubs are um you know and that they actually appreciate and understand that they have to Mm. um because you know golf clubs are an aging membership Mm-hmm. Um, and if you haven't got the next generations coming in, where are the next club members going to mm. come from? Are there enough young girls coming through into the game? 
Um, well, I think if you look at the MyGolf stats, I think that that says that the the women's my uh, the girls MyGolf uh, stats in the last year were up thirty percent. So that's a that's real the positive. Junior program for the junior golf. program, yes, the entry level program, mm-hmm. yeah, for for junior girls golf. Um, and I think the junior girls scholarship, which has been established. Mm-hmm. Um, by uh, Bonnie Bozeman um, mm. working with the Australian Golf Foundation. I mean, this year we're going to have a 1,000 girls come into that program. And what is that um, program, if in case there's mums that have daughters who might be interested in doing it? Yeah, so it's basically run through the clubs and um, due to funding, uh, most of it is um, basically, you know, people just saying I want to donate some money to golf and what sort of space should I donate it to and obviously some want to support junior girls. Um, the, the various um, state bodies and different foundations around the country, uh, like I said, we've got a couple of very generous um, private benefactors who have donated significant amounts of money. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a, it's a the club actually gets paid a certain amount of money and all they have to do um in return is to provide the girls with uh, junior membership for one year mm-hmm. um, and then the rest of the money goes towards those girls having uh, lessons from the professionals, so 24 weeks of lessons mm-hmm. for the girls and it doesn't cost um, doesn't cost anyone anything. Perfect. The foundation covers all those costs. So, yeah. yeah, like I said, all the clubs have got to do really is say that they can be members of the club for a year and, and we have come up with a few clubs who have had to change their constitution because their constitution didn't allow any free memberships so they've actually changed them which is what? good yeah i know okay. crazy isn't it wow yeah i know yeah but um yeah, it's a great program and i think we, we will have, not have poor had... people at this club <laughs> we will not have freeloaders at this club pretty much just imagine when from... that was written into the constitution oh my god wow. that's crazy isn't it's it good it's changing good it's changing if there's a message to a mum who has a young girl about getting into golf what what would you say to encourage that mum to get her daughter into golf? Um, if if she doesn't play golf already, I'd say the my golf um, go to one of the my golf junior camps. And, why? and one thing that we are why why go play golf? Oh, it's an well, why play golf? Oh, it's a mate. It's a game for life. Um, it's a game you can play with your friends. You can play with your family. Mm. Um, it's great fun. It's challenging. Um, yeah, there's so you can travel and see great golf, golf clubs exactly. around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. You can you can play golf anywhere. Yeah, literally anywhere. Um, you don't have to look. You know, there's there's mm. golf clubs in in hundreds of golf clubs in Australia and throughout the world. Every town you go to in Australia has pretty much got a golf club. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's – a, I think for young girls it needs to be fun and I think the My Golf sessions are quite mm. fun. And then once they're, once they're started golf and they've got a bit of an eye for it and they want to go, then go to your local golf club and ask them if they're involved mm. in the Junior Girls Scholarship Program. Mm. And if they're not, they should be. Yeah. Um, because it's not – it's a little bit of work for the club but the benefits that they can huge. Get, um, are huge. Yeah. Exactly. My final question is – the question we ask everyone, if you could go back and have a message for your 10-year-old self, that little shy book nerd, Karen Lund, growing <laughs> up in Cara, what message would you tell her if you had the chance? Yeah, I would just say just to be yourself. Don't ever try to be anything that you're not because in life you you we're, we're told to conform to so many different things um, and I just think to just to be yourself. And, and if that's the person you are, that's the person you are. Mm. I think I spent my whole life growing up trying to be like my sister 
And there was no way I was ever going to be like her. She probably did um, the same, of, right? Oh, I don't know about that, but anyway. Um, but, yeah, just just be yourself and uh, that's that's good enough. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, Karen. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Having a coughing. Stop making me laugh. That's all right. No, well, it's a right. wonderful yeah. message, absolute wonderful message. I've enjoyed this chat so much. Um, Me too. The future's looking bright. It's been through some tough times for WPGA, but to to be where it is, I think our founders um, and Alan would be really proud of where the sport is today in 2022, celebrating the 50th anniversary. Yeah, 100%. I know that they are very proud and I'm looking forward to catching up with many of them in a couple of weeks and, and you also. But no, thanks for having me on, Sam. It's been a blast. Really enjoyed it. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. 